Hello, everyone. Hello, my viewers. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I have a special program for you today, but first I want to remind those who would like to send me an email uh, and don't have my address. My email address is drpeterresnick at gmail.com. G-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N as Nancy, I-K at gmail.com. And also, if you would like to call during this show with your comments and or questions, you can do this as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the number here is 888-874-4888. Ladies and gentlemen, you probably heard this expression, money does not change people, it simply reveals who they are. And the divorce doesn't change people, and the war doesn't change people, and the COVID-19 does not change people, it simply reveals who they are. I think I said this referring to Dr. Peter jo uh, Robert Yoha, who I interviewed here at PRN uh, last week. That uh, doing this show gives me an opportunity to, to meet some beautiful, beautiful people who encounter injustice or corruption or some other evil. And then these encounters reveal who they really are. And these are people of integrity, intelligence, and courage, the courage to speak their mind, even though it may not be so politically correct or even safe these days, unfortunately. And it is people like Dr. Peter Bregan, whose work I have been following for over 30 years. And, and this year, finally, I was fortunate to meet him in person. Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Robert Yoho, Dr. Elizabeth Lee Deet, and about two months ago, precisely, I believe on July 7th, I listened to Dr. Bregan's interview of Dr. Pam Popper. And she spoke about COVID-19 and what she was doing about the situation that we are in. Dr. Popper founded an organization, Make Americans Free Again, getting to know her work as a uh, how do I call it, a social activist or the voice of sanity, is what giving me hope that America will recover and those who are responsible for the chaos that we're in and the whole world is in will stand trial. And as I was listening to this interview, I thought, what a fighter, what a beautiful human being this woman is. And then I decided uh, to do some search on the internet um, and I listened to a number of her videos and found that Dr. Popper um, has a very interesting profession. Uh, she does an incredibly interesting work and, and very daring work. So I decided to give it a shot and see if she would agree to come to this show for the, an interview. And guess what? She agreed. So I'm so happy to have Dr. Popper with us today. Uh, she is an, a naturopathic physician who created wellness forum health centers around the United States. Her company provides educational programs, uh, extensive libraries of videos and articles, diet and lifestyle intervention, and assistance to people who are interested in 
Regaining and or Maintaining Optimum Health. She's the author of books Solving American's Health Crisis, Food Over Medicine, The Conversation That Could Save Your Life, and her latest book, COVID-19, uh, COVID Operation, What Happened, Why It Happened, and What's Next. On July 7th, Dr. Popper gave uh, this incredible interview, as I said, that I was listening to, to Dr. Bregan about her efforts to educate people on what's going on with this whole COVID-19 business and why she called it an operation. And she is actually creating a community of resistance. So I'm not going to ask her to repeat today the interview. I would like you to I welcome you or, or encourage you to listen to the interview. Simply go on Dr. Peter Bregan's hour uh, it airs on Wednesdays on July 7th show, and you can hear the whole interview. I invited Dr. Popper today to speak about her work as a health practitioner. In fact, I wanted us to focus on two subjects, the workings of the, her wellness centers, wellness forum, and on her book, Food Over Medicine. Uh, Dr. Popper, welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's toolbox. Oh, well, thank you. Please call me Pam. Pam, okay, I'm Peter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have to tell you, it's so fitting for you to be here at this show because, you know, I call it the toolbox. And in your writings and in your talks, you don't talk theory. It's, it's tools. Right. So I have to tell you, since I did the research on your work, I've been a regular listener every single day. I listen to your show. And today you were speaking about the chatter in the mind and you were modestly saying I'm not a health mental health professional. It was a fantastic short presentation and I'm sure a lot of people benefit from it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, uh, it's been almost two months. Before we go to the main subject of today's uh, interview, it's been, and I, and I really I hope people listen to the interview done by Peter Bregan, but it's been two months since the interview. Is there anything else that came after that interview? Is there anything you want to, to share? Well, um, I guess the, the, the as people always ask me, like, what do I think is going on? What do I think the chances that we're going to get our rights back and we're going to go back to normal and all that sort of thing? I don't think we're going to go back to normal. I don't want to go back to normal. Normal is when this all was ripe to happen, right? So we have to go someplace. And and I don't want to fight to go back. I want to fight to go forward to someplace better, right? I think that's a very important distinction. And um, what I'm watching, with, and I smile a lot. People say, how can you smile a lot during this? Well, here's what's going on that gets no attention whatsoever. So, you know, the vaccine mandates are making people apoplectic, and they should be. It's very concerning. Well, here in Ohio, we had one hospital chain say, never mind, because they couldn't uh, deal with the losses. And another one changed the uh, date, pushed it out further, saying, we need more time for education, because that's going to fix it, right? That's a, that's a, they can't say we failed, right? We can't get people to do it. So they have to postpone. And I think what will happen is in some areas, in a lot of areas, this is going to go away because in the healthcare field, for example, 30, 30 people leaving a hospital leaves the hospital unable to operate. So, so I see some encouraging things out there. 
in terms of people waking up and realizing that this is not unlike Nazi Germany. You have to put the star in your arm to buy food. Well, then the star, that's not enough. Then we're going to, you know, more and more and more. So you have to get the vaccine to be normal, but now you have to wear the mask and the vaccine. You got to have a passport. And so people are trying to say, wait a minute, what, I thought I was, I thought this was my ticket to normal and everything's getting worse instead of better. So, so I don't think that the people running this right now are getting their way in the way that they thought. And I, I don't want to be uh, sugarcoated. We're in a miserable situation. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But we're starting to see the beginning of the unraveling because people who got the vaccine, which were the go-along to get-along folks are feeling like they've been terribly, um, uh, everything was misrepresented to them. And we've had actually a few people say here, not none of my people are vaccinated, but clients and that sort of thing saying, I feel like I got cheated. I would never have done this if I thought that it wasn't going to help, you know, and now it doesn't help. And, you know, so all this to say, sooner or later, criminals do themselves in and these people are doing themselves in and it will become easier and easier to take them down over time. I, I have to tell you something. Uh, this whole business with COVID and socialism and control I've been in this country, thank God, for 40 years, and I love this country. And I didn't realize, Mr. Psychologist, that in the last year, I would say now I've been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because it threw me into this world that I lived in the first 27 years of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the last few years of being there, it wasn't pretty at all. I was homeless. I was interrogated by KGB and so on. and. But what led to it was really constantly watching over your shoulder. And I found myself just talking to my son a couple of days ago on the phone. And I said, Aaron, let's not talk about it on the phone. Let's talk about it when you come. And then suddenly I had this flashback of being afraid of saying something out loud because somebody will hear. Mm -hmm. Remember uh, ex-governor, thank God, of New York, uh, Como, who said, yes, if some, it's okay to turn people in if somebody didn't put the mask on. Mm -hmm. Exactly what the Soviet Union was. That's exactly what was happening in Nazi Germany. So you're yeah. right. And, and it's kind of unnerving. Well, and they, they've labeled everybody who does not repeat the, the socialist narrative as a domestic terrorist, which means that these kinds of conversations are ripe for having somebody arrested or detained or whatever. It's in, very frightening. In yeah. Russian, they called it Vragnaroda, Vragnaroda, the enemy of the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I just, again, I won't, I won't ask to talk about the, your book and the Wellness Forum because it, it sounds, it looks to me very, very, a very interesting work that you do. But I just want to ask, ladies and gentlemen, please, if you can make time for it, read the book, The COVID Operation. I love the book. Uh, I don't have time to talk about it, unfortunately. But what I found, for example, uh, uh, a chapter, COVID Land, it's 49 pages. And I made a note for myself not to forget. It's 49 pages. There are 12 pages of references. So the Pam is not talking theory doesn't say give her opinion she gives exactly correct information which you can go on internet and check for accuracy of it so i would very highly recommend the book and Thank now you. let's let's go to our main subject
Okay. In one of your videos, you said, uh, maybe I'm paraphrasing, that you said it's much better to maintain your health than to deal with crisis. So I have two questions that I would like us to discuss. One, your ways to prevent the crisis, that is how to keep yourself healthy. And the second will be, of course, uh, what, what your approaches to dealing with crisis. And you know, my, my specialty is mind-body medicine. My, I work with the mental aspect, with, with the emotional, mental, and spiritual environment that made it conducive to, for a person to get ill. But you have your approach. I think our approaches are very complementary. Mm -hmm. So let's start answering the first question. How okay. do you protect yourself? How do you keep healthy if you are healthy? Yeah, so I teach by analogy. And really, everybody understands maintenance, standard maintenance. Uh, you know, you do this with your car. You know, wait till the car breaks down, you have the oil changed and you have the spark plugs replaced. And every so often you do certain things to your car to keep it running. And at the very first sign that the roof is looking a little stressed, you don't wait till it's raining inside, you replace the roof because you have a big investment in your house, right? I have mine's a big investment, so I take care of it. And so we understand the idea of scheduled maintenance for houses and cars and offices and other stuff that we have, stuff, right? So how about you look at scheduled maintenance for your body? And scheduled maintenance for your body is every day you have to drink enough water. And scheduled maintenance for your body is you have to eat several times a day. Depends on your eating pattern and all that, but you know that that uh, you have to eat well if you want to if you want to live for a long time. I mean, the average person puts a ton of food through their body every year. So just think about what that looks like, and it's either gonna it's going to have an effect. I mean, I don't know anybody that would argue that it wouldn't have an effect, but is it going to have a good effect or a bad effect? Depends on what it is, right? Um, scheduled maintenance is exercise you know, five, six times a week of some form that you like and enjoy. Uh, scheduled maintenance is sleep. It's making sure that your quality of life, even during this time, um, I mean, I've been doing, it's Herculean work that I've been doing for the last uh, 14 months, 16, 18 months, I guess it is, the time flies. And I'm still in really good shape because I've been taking care of myself in all those ways. The scheduled maintenance has not been interrupted, you know. So, so it's so much easier to do that on a regular basis because it becomes just part of your routine and the investment in time can be fit into your schedule. Now let's contrast that with, I'm gonna eat, drink and be merry. I'm not gonna worry about exercise and if I'm dehydrated and if I'm stressed and I don't sleep and I eat garbage all the time, but now I have cancer, all right? I've got stage four cancer. This takes up all of your time. There is nothing going on except cancer. Um, even if it's not quite that serious, if it's stage two cancer, the only thing that you have room for in your life now is cancer. Your job is secondary. Your family has to be secondary. You have to survive. And it takes everything to survive. And it costs you an enormous amount of money. You gotta eat every day anyway. But co-pays for treatment cost money. And, and we know that people go bankrupt paying for cancer. You have a heart attack. You have a stroke. And now you're disabled, right? So 
So the point is that if you look at the alternative, what happens if you don't maintain your car and it just stops someplace when you're on your way to Cleveland and you're by the side of the road? Well, that takes all your time now to, to figure it out. If you wait until the house falls down, oh my gosh, it's very expensive. You have to go live somewhere else. So, so if you just do this every day, it can become part of your routine. And we're all still going to die someday, but we can postpone it for a long time. And we can also postpone huge maintenance by dealing with the daily maintenance as we go through life. So that's what I mean by easier to maintain than wait for illness. Well, thank you. That, that's a vision. Now I want you to, go, if you don't mind, becoming a little more concrete. With mm -hmm. your wellness forum, you have a number of protocols. I didn't read all. I, I, I've seen you, you offer classes, courses, education. It's, all. it's huge. It's huge. But what my listeners imagine some of you some of them probably know you in your work but but many may not mm -hmm. so what would be your advice about health maintenance i wake up in the morning by the way in your book um, um the how do you call it food over medicine yeah yeah yeah, yeah. sorry <laughs> in in food over medicine i downloaded this uh, pyramid, which mm -hmm. is different from the pyramid that now uh, I guess FDA is offering. And the biggest one is water. By the way, since I saw the pyramid, I've been drinking much more water. Yay! <laughs> Good, I'm glad I had an influence. Yes, yeah, but water. This is ginger tea, I love. And I, I think you probably will agree that it's not too bad, right? Right, right. That's fine. That's fine. So what do you actually do? What are the specifics? The, the pyramid, right. Yeah. The, the main thing is water. That's the, the biggest. Take us through the pyramid and what an average person who is not ill. By mm -hmm. the way, our average listener is a middle-aged person. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about people being in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and so on. So a healthy person. Yeah. Well, a healthy person or an unhealthy person who wants to be healthy, right? So you're right. You start at the bottom with the pyramid. 64 ounces of water is your base, all right? Um, and then more. Like today, it's 90 degrees in Ohio, and I ran for four miles this morning. So, um, what's, so the, what's the humidity? Oh, it's, it's awful. I mean, it's pouring rain right now. It wasn't raining when I when I ran. But, um, but because it was so humid, like I came back, I looked like I'd been in a swimming pool. And it was just a short run because I had a really crazy day today, but I made sure that I ran. I so I have to drink a little bit more water today as a result. a short run? <laughs> That's a short run, yeah. Because Sunday I ran eight miles. Um, because uh, on Sunday I have more time, right? So I went out for a short, hard run, uh, hills and you know stuff like that, because I had to make it in a shorter period of time. So I'm going to have to drink more water today because I lost so much in this humidity, right? So I'll probably have more, like closer to 90 some ounces today. But but the reason why you have to have this water is because I'll just give you the easiest reason for people to understand: 60% uh, of your blood plasma is water, all right? And so if you don't drink enough water then your plasma shrinks and it becomes thick and sticky and viscous. And that's why heart attacks happen in the morning, by the way, because that's the most dehydrated time of the day. But I mean, you can't have empty spaces in your vessels, so your vessels start to constrict a little bit. So you've got this thick, sticky, sludgy blood trying to make its way through narrow vessels. So you don't want to do that, right? So plenty of water, hydrate yourself, all kinds of other things like your skin looks better. Everything looks better if you're hydrated. And then next you see uh, on the pyramid, you see starchy vegetables, right? 
And this becomes very important because this, this is where the calorie density comes in a diet that's more plant-centered because most people eat a lot of junk food and animal food, very calorie dense. So you're not going to do that on this eating plan. So we eat a lot of uh, potatoes and rice and beans and whole grains and root vegetables, beets and carrots. I eat a lot of that kind of stuff every day. Um, and that's where the calorie density comes from. And then vegetables and then fruit. So, so the, the pyramid is very weighted on water, starchy food, vegetables and fruit. Now, starchy food, I'm not talking about French fries. I'm not talking about potato chips. I'm talking about, you know, whole sweet potatoes and, and those kinds of foods. And then um, you can have um, some processed food. We all eat some processed food. I'm talking about pasta and, and really good whole grain dense breads and, um, you know, those types of things are fine. Tofu. And then uh, above that, you've got some higher fat plant foods that you have to be careful of because you can get fat eating a lot of avocado, just like you can get fat eating cheese. And then some minimally processed or some uh, animal foods, organic and wild caught only, no dairy, um, two to three times a week, which kind of mimics an Asian eating style, Okinawan eating style. And then at the very tippy top, it's tiny, tiny, tiny like this, okay? That's called treats. And this is like, wine on your birthday, birthday cake, cookies on Thanksgiving. I mean, we all have some of that stuff. But, you know, the reason why I'm really busy every day and I wish I wasn't so much is because people are having a birthday party all day, every day, seven days a week, birthday party time with the way that they eat and drink and be merry, right? So so you you just, um, you reserve those uh, those treats for special occasions. And and um, and so it's a, it's a fairly livable eating plan. It certainly doesn't um, presuppose that you're gonna eat perfectly or that you can't have treats, but it basically says that there's a difference between what we eat on Tuesday, normal day, like today, versus what we eat on Thanksgiving versus what we eat on my birthday versus Wednesday, normal day, right? So um, food versus treat. And that's basically it. And then we teach people how to do it easily. It's not, it doesn't have to be a lot of work. You can batch cook. I do all my cooking on Sunday afternoon. I'm ready for the whole week. And then all I have to do is warm stuff up and make salads and I'm good to go. Um, you know about lactins and this. I, I, I don't, I, I'm just picked up a book by a doctor. I wrote a paper on lectins. You, yeah. 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 Do you recommend that people soak their grains before cooking? No, not necessarily. We, and, and here's the thing. There are a lot of my colleagues who want to make this as hard as possible for people to do. And, um, and I, I'm just the opposite. I want to make it as easy for you to do this as possible. And the two things that people say most often after they have worked with us is, first of all, the food's a whole lot better than I thought it was going to be. And this is a whole lot easier than I thought it was going to be to do. And so we're interested. We, and I'll tell you, one thing that drives what we do here that's a little bit different from other people is we don't teach people through we weekend seminars and that kind of stuff. People become members here and they stay members for some of them a couple decades now or longer. So we have a chance to see what works, not just in the first 90 days, but what people will stick with over time. And so uh, on the one hand, you, you don't want to be so liberal that it doesn't really make any difference. And, and the diet literature is filled, scientific literature is filled with studies where people make changes that aren't very significant and they don't make very significant differences in their health. But the other side of it is you don't want to make this so hard that people say, well, if I have a job, I can't eat well. That's that's counterproductive, right? So um, you don't have to soak, soak grains. I mean, you can you can buy gasp. I can hear the audible gasp from some people. You can buy frozen rice and put it in the microwave. It works just fine. You don't even have to cook it in a rice cooker.
you believe that you, you don't think that microwave is not good really to use you don't i don't i don't think about anything because it has no, nothing to do with what i think every year when i teach my research and writing class one of the assignments is to write a paper about microwaves and um, and uh, and so and I don't. Uh, there's no tell. In other words, um, unless you know somebody who took the course last year, you don't really know what the answer to the question is. But I can tell you that in 10 years, I've never had anybody that was able to make a case using scientific literature that microwaves are bad for you. Um, now, the, the, it, because if you look at all the the injuries, it's from people eating food that was too hot. Well, I got news for you. If you take it off the stove and it's too hot, you can burn your tongue just as well. All right. Um, there's no nutrient loss. I mean, if you put if you put broccoli in a pile in, a, in four cups of water and put it in the microwave for 10 minutes, you lose all the nutrients. But if you do that same thing on the stovetop, you're going to lose all the nutrients. Right. So so, you know, comparison wise, it doesn't do anything bad to the food from a nutrient standpoint. And um, and so that's an example of um, there's a lot of tribalism is what I call it in our field. People develop beliefs about things and then they, they tell people about their beliefs. And I tell when people ask me what I believe, I tell them, you don't want to know what I believe. You want to know how to figure out what is scientific truth. And I'm going to show you the method and we can talk about that a little bit. And, and then you actually kind of arrive at a right conclusion. And, and I will talk just a little bit about how you arrive at conclusions, because the way that these issues are discussed is he said, and she said, and my uncle said, and then I read an article, but you read a different one. And then somebody uh, read a book and you read a different one. And I saw a website and all, it's very circular discussion, right? So, so again, I teach by analogy. So let's talk about football for just 20 seconds, all right? So let, you could say football is we just run up and down the field with a football for an hour and then we try to figure out who won. Well, you can never figure out who won that way. So they have rules for football. All right, each team has a certain number of players and each quarter is 15 minutes and the first down is 10 yards. And if you're gonna kick a field goal, you have to go through the post, right? It is always that way. So the result of having rules for football is that you can play hundreds of thousands of games all over the world during football season. And at the end of the season, you have maybe five plays where people are really debating what happened. All right. Did the ref call it right? OK. All right. So why, what if we did that same thing with the medical literature? We said, listen, we're going to have rules. So here are our rules for, for looking at scientific information. Conflicts of interest would be one. Let's filter that. Um, has the research ever been replicated? Are we talking about something that's statistically significant or clinically meaningful? Like reducing the risk of something by one-tenth of a percent, nobody cares about that. It doesn't change anybody's life. Um, you know, is the study design appropriate? Um, it does it answer a question that needs to be answered. In other words, boiling broccoli and four cups of water, what's the outcome of that? Do we really have a lot of doubt about that, whether you put it in a microwave or you stick it on the stovetop, as I mentioned before? Um, you know, looking at uh, associations and, uh, and correlations versus cause and effect relationships, is there a mechanism of action? So we have about 19 rules that we use when we filter information. And at the end, you actually arrive, just like the football game, we know who won the game. It's not debatable, all right? And so if you use rules, then you know what the answer to the question is, if, if, assuming that there's medical literature to review. Or you can say, nobody's looked at it yet. And you'd be surprised how many times everybody, everybody knows something. But then when you go look at the medical literature, you've got three studies, three case reports, 
and you say, well, nobody, nobody, everybody knows, nobody knows. Three case reports doesn't give you the answer to anything, right? That's regarding the thing I feel about microwaves, because I, I carry this belief. First time I heard about microwaves was maybe 35 years ago. I heard Deepak Chopra say, I don't, don't know any studies, but intuitively I feel it's not good for you. And mm -hmm. I got into it, <laughs> Mr. Scientist, this is it. Now well, I, you know what? At least he was honest about it, because I encounter people all the time who don't use the caveat, there aren't any studies, but this is what I believe. That's an honest statement. Yeah. I'm dealing with people usually who say, the scientific research shows that microwaves are terrible for you. All right. And so one of the ways that I can kind of uh, goad my students, I like doing this sometimes, is I'll, I'll say, you know, scientific research shows that microwaves aren't good for you, so write a paper on it. And then sometimes if I do that, I do it with other topics too, they'll write to me and they'll go, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I can't find any of the scientific research showing that the microwaves are bad for you, right? And so I tell them, well, you have to keep looking and keep looking. And then sometimes we have to carry over the assignments to another class period because they show up and they go, I couldn't find anything. Could anybody find anything? Nobody can find anything. Okay, that's the point. You took that as a factual statement instead of doing what Dr. Karl Popper, not my relative, by the way, unfortunately, but he was the guy who talked about, about um, assume the opposite. He had a different language for it. But, but when somebody tells you something, you say, okay, well, what if I assume that the opposite is true? And I look into it from that perspective. And then uh, often that's where you find your answers. You know, So that's one of the ways I teach my students is to give them an assignment where they think that they're supposed to prove the point I gave them, and then they've been very frustrated. So now I feel bad. You know, I, every time I visit my sister in Florida, and when we spoke on the phone, I was visiting my sister. I terrorize her. <laughs> I tell her not to use microwave. Well, but you know what? You could, you could, and this is this is where you get into the difference between ideology and science, all right? So I do a lot of things that I don't tell other people to do because they're personal choice. So I eat a vegan diet. You don't have to eat a vegan diet. I just decided I wanted to do that, all right? And then people say, well, what do you have? What do you do for exercise? And I tell them, I'm going to give you the answer, but I'm going to qualify it a little bit because I wouldn't want to mislead you. I have a yoga studio right across the hallway. I have a gym and an athletic facility in the back of my building. And I have complete control over my time. So when I tell you that I run and I go to yoga classes and I work out in the gym, hard workouts a couple times a week, you might think, who has time for that? Well, I do because it's all right here and I can control my time. Now, if you're a CPA during tax season, you can't do all that. And thankfully, it's not necessary. So there's a difference between what I'm choosing to do and what's necessary for people to do to maintain their health. So, um, and I think that practitioners often don't make that differentiation. And essentially, what they're doing, like I could have started a company called I Want to Be Like Pam. I don't know that there would be a lot of takers for that, but 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 they, that's what they've done is they've started a company to teach people to be like them. And that's not what you should be doing in the healthcare business. You want to teach people to be what they want to be. And, and so the idea is I'm going to share, we're, we're going to learn how to explore science together and it's going to be fun. And you're going to love looking at research studies, which they're all thinking, yeah, right. But they do love it and they get really good at it after a while. And, and I'll tell you the fun, the best stories we hear are when somebody who has no medical education whatsoever sits down with the head of oncology at the local university and says, I've been looking at studies on this treatment you've recommended for me. And um, here's the thing, it only extends my life by 10 weeks and the side effects are dreadful. And the copay is ridiculous, I'm not doing this. And their jaw drops, you know, how could this person possibly know this? That's being in control of your health. When you know 
when you know the answer because you understand it, not doing what I say, but because you know. And then it's not all about what I would do if I was in that situation and giving advice and all that kind of stuff. Teach people how to make their own decisions based on looking at information and anybody can learn how to do it and they arrive at the right conclusion every time. So. Very interesting. But, but as you're talking, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking she ran four miles on the humid day. I want to be like them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot run when it's so humid. I cannot. And I don't run. I run three miles and don't run four miles. <laughs> but on oh. 90 degrees weather, oh, yeah, yeah. That is where everybody's different. So I can't, in the summertime, it's never too hot. And in the wintertime, it's always too cold. And other people say, oh, I love the wintertime. And I, you know, I, I, I can always warm up enough, you know, in the winter. So everybody's a little bit different that way. Yeah, I invited to, for, for, to this show, um, um, the Iceman. Did you hear the Iceman? Wim Hof? Wim Hof, yes. Yeah, I, I just read about him. I, I follow him. I, I walk uh, to the park in my trunks and in the t-shirt at 20 degrees of uh, oh <laughs> cold or 20 Fahrenheit. So in the beginning it was tough, but then you get used to it. It's much easier. I, really, it's hard for me to be with in hot weather. But wow, what you are saying, I heard, uh, I listened to one of your talks on uh, blood pressure and, and heart problems. And you are saying that the biggest issue, unless a person has some, already some, some problems, the biggest problem is not drinking a lot, enough water. Oh, and eating high fat food and carrying extra weight, you know, it's a, it's the way you live your life. And then we, we even have to think about, you, you know, how you deal with problems. Most people show up here with problems. They're not here to learn how to stay healthy. They're here to resolve problems. And one of the first things we have to look at is what actually is your problem or was it a problem, all right? And so one of the things that's happened <clears throat> and that's just terrible is the drug companies have gotten involved in setting the diagnostic parameters for disease. And so um, they keep ratcheting down the benchmark for medication because it's good for business for them. But we end up with a lot of people who are over-medicated or never should have been medicated. And there's some excellent data. I don't know if you ever use the nnt.com, number need of the treat. And they're, they're filling in that library, but it's an excellent metric. In other words, if you're a blood, if you're a slightly, if you have slightly high blood pressure, um, you'll find out that the NNT, the number of people who have to be drugged in order for you to benefit, is just huge. It's like, but if you think you're that lucky, go buy a lottery ticket today, you know, uh, if you really think that luck is on your side. So um, we have a lot of people who come here and they never should have been medicated. And that's not our opinion. That's what the medical literature says. And they take it back to their doctors and have discussions with them about it. And, um, and one, one rule that we try to help people understand is generally speaking, the smaller the abnormality, the less you benefit from medical intervention. So medical intervention used to be reserved for people who had gross abnormalities. Like you show up in a doctor's office and your blood pressure is 160 over 100. You better take some blood pressure medication probably right away, all right? And then we can look at how possible is it for you to get off of that medication at a later time. But we're not doing that kind of intervention in healthcare anymore. What we're basically doing is we're taking healthy people and sucking them into what I call the medical mill 
where a healthy person becomes a sick person through interacting with people looking for sickness. And then that actually does make them sick over time because the interventions are not, uh, are not innocuous. I mean, they, they all have side effects. So, um, so usually people show up here because they're in the medical mill, they figured out something is terribly wrong and they're looking for it to, uh, to, to be in better shape. Once, since we are talking now about uh, heart problems, do you do look at mental and emotional aspects of it, mm-hmm. right? Because, for example, we know there are numerous studies from around the world that show that a surviving spouse has twice as high a risk of getting a heart attack and dying right. than an average person. So, regardless of what they eat. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and I think that goes to the importance of looking at whole person, the whole person health. And um, and so what's wrong with medicine, and there's so many things wrong, but one of the things is that it's become very specialized. Like when I was, when I was a kid, I'm 64, and so I grew up in a family where we had a family doctor. And the family doctor took care of my mother and my dad and my sister and me and my maternal grandparents and my aunt and uncle and their five kids, family, doctor, right? And he knew our family. And he also knew enough about members of our family that if my mother called and said something about going on with me, he knew whether to say bring her in or keep her home from school for a day, all right? Now, at the first sign of anything, I mean, really, if you have a hangnail, you need to go get medical intervention. And then everybody specializes in a body part. So people go to an endocrinologist and a gastroenterologist and a neurologist and a psychiatrist and a gynecologist, and everybody specializes in a body part. Nobody's looking at the whole. And then nobody's looking at the fact that you, you, the mental health has a lot to do with this. A psychiatrist give you drugs just as easily as a cardiologist will give you drugs. And so um, when people come here, I mean, we could make the same mistake and say, we're just going to talk to you about diet. Well, that's a different form of reductionism because to suggest that we're going to change your diet and you can keep on taking six drugs while you're seeing seven doctors and um, your mental health situation is deteriorating by the day, that's just as ludicrous as going from doctor to doctor to get drugs. So we basically say, look, you're the totality of the way you take care of yourself and all of your medical history. We, that that's all has to be taken into consideration. You cannot teach, you take care of one thing. So yeah, you might have to eat better, you might need to exercise, but to suggest that an obese diabetic who binge eats, who takes six drugs and has migraines and irregular menstrual periods and an injured knee is gonna get better by eating more broccoli is just as ludicrous as saying, I specialize in diseases of the reproductive tract and I don't care about anything else, right? So, so totality, we need to, and I'm hoping that this crisis that we're in now is going to cause so many people to leave healthcare that will go back to some individual practitioners out there that like my family doctor as a child, I have fond memories of that family doctor. And I think about, I don't have any happy memories of interactions with doctors in my adult life, just wanting to get away from them as fast as I could, right? Now, I know some great docs who are colleagues of mine. I've never been a patient of theirs, but the ones I've actually had to seek help from, I just couldn't wait to get the heck away from them and um, and not have to interact with them again. And, and when people go to your, it, it's a number of, I think you mentioned 17 centers you have, right? We don't have centers. We have, um, we have one big center here 
And then we have affiliates who offer our services. In other words, our, what we do here, we have an athletic facility and a yoga studio. And we make food. We have a food production company. We have a green tea farm in China. We have a lot of things that we do. But And we own a school. We train healthcare professionals. But, but our affiliates learn how to uh, help people with whole person health, getting you out of the medical mill, which is a division of our company that has these affiliates. We haven't duplicated this operation around the country. It's very expensive to build. And most people would not want to make such a capital investment, I think. So when people go to, they actually physically come to your center? Not most only. people do not. Most Like we have a big local operation, but we do business in 33 countries. So most of the people we interact with are through conference calls and Zoom or they're taking, uh, we have uh, 3,600 hours of online courses uh, that people can take on lots of different subjects or they're accessing our libraries and, and that kind of thing. So, um, so people all over the world can participate. And the level of participation is everything from very passive watching, learning, reading, to very interactive, to training, to change your career, to do the kind of work that we do. So it's the center very much unlike uh, uh, Hippocrates. I saw you speaking at Hippocrates. I also spoke there uh, mm -hmm. years ago. So it's a very, very lovely place in Florida. I wasn't actually there. I was at New York. They sponsor a conference in New York every year called The Real Truth About Health. And okay. uh, that, that was a conference on Long Island. So I, they're, they're a big sponsor. And I've had a chance to meet um, the owners who are very lovely people. And uh, it is a beautiful facility. I've not visited it myself, but many people have gone and said it was a beautiful facility and they enjoyed their stay very much. Yeah, though I, I have questions about a raw food and eating a raw food for a long time. I don't. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to. And and that's an example of what I'm talking about. I'm, they're they're not doing anything wrong in in doing that. But but um, again, what what we have got to do. I, I use a term called sales prevention. All right. And, and we experience sales prevention here. This is where you call a company to buy something, and they make it so difficult that you can't buy from them. Right. And so and this happens once in a while. People will say, I was going to try, I've tried to order boxes today and I spent the better part of the afternoon. I can't get anybody to sell me the boxes I want, right? Well, that's sales prevention. All right. So we want people, you and I would like for people to take better care of themselves, right? So how we can do sales prevention in that area is we can make people think, listen, if you don't eat raw food and you don't sprout and you don't give up coffee and you don't, you know, I mean, if you ever eat another cookie again, you must just not care about your health. And if you have a cocktail on your birthday, my gosh, you must have a death wish. And, you know, and if you're not in bed by 10 o'clock, then the world's going to come to an end. And so what you do is you set up this massive Byzantine set of rules that the average person says, well, I mean, maybe if I was dying, I would do all that, but I just can't fathom living that way, right? And so I, I think the key is we have to have some sensitivity to what people can and will do. Now, I come from a business background. I don't know if we talked about this in my um, in, in when we talked before, but where this becomes important and we need to learn from it in healthcare is when you're involved in business, everything is about metrics, all right? You measure things. How are we doing? That's a reasonable thing to ask, all right? So when I hear people say, I can't get anybody to do this, well, that should be a big red flag that you need to do something different. If nobody's listening, like when I worked for a company and we sold stuff, we never sat around and said, nobody wants to buy our product. Boy, are those people out there stupid, all right? We had to say, first of all, do we have a good product? 
And then how do we message it so people want to buy it? You could never survive in a business environment basically saying nobody will listen to you. You have to figure out what is it I'm doing that makes nobody want to listen to me. So so I, I think it's all great what a lot of these people do, but I don't think they realize that when people get back home, this is not sustainable. And another thing I want to talk about too that I think is important is that we all, the humans don't live all by themselves. We all live in, in situations with family and friends and all this. Now, it's already different enough to eat well, all right? So my, my friends, they're very respectful of me, but but I eat differently than they do. And and they're and they'll if we're going out to a restaurant, they'll make sure the restaurant has stuff I'll eat and all that. But but you just start you you go away to some place and come back, or you take some class and come back and say I only eat raw food, and I don't eat after four o'clock in the afternoon, and then I have to have this very special thing for breakfast, and I can't really eat out anywhere because nobody makes food according to the way that I like it. And your friends and family start to think that you got kidnapped at the airport, locked up and brainwashed, and they dropped you off in front of the house, you know, and this doesn't help get other people on board, not necessarily that you want them to eat the way that you do. I'm not expecting my friends to convert and most of them haven't, but just that you don't want people to think you're a lunatic and why bother trying to accommodate you either. That's not helpful, right? So we want people to live like normal humans. There's no place in Columbus I can't go out to eat and do just fine. And there's nothing that I... You know, so you as normally as possible. A long story about that, but I think that's very important because we want to get people on board, not scare them away. Yeah, but in in your center, do you have someone who deals with mental and emotional issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When somebody. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. Because you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. And and a lot of people, even the even the belief that you can get well is important. In other words, if you believe you're stuck being sick, that you're stuck being sick. And and that belief has to be altered for somebody to get better. And and so we with the busiest people in our operation are mental health, <laughs> particularly during this time. They're a lot busier than I am right right now, actually. That brings us to our next subject. And that is how do you, how you deal with specific problems? Do you work? Do you happen to work with a lot of cancer patients or not? A lot of what? Cancer patients. Oh, a lot. Yes, very a lot. A lot of everything here. Yeah. It's, it's before my eyes. America changed. The world changed. Uh, in in only forty years ago, when I came to America, I think one of uh, twelve women in America got. Uh, breast cancer. Now I think one of six. Well, we we have to separate fake breast cancer from real breast cancer. Right? So, yeah. So, so yeah. yes, the cancer rate is is going up. But but what, one of the things that we have to look at, and it, it goes back to the disease mongering. Everything, most things we do in medicine have some application, but the way that you get really rich at doing it is to broaden the population, right? So um, there's only one screening test that actually works for preventing, reducing the risk of dying of cancer, and that's HAP testing for cervical cancer. The rest of the stuff, you get lots more diagnoses, but you don't get an improved death rate, all right? So breast cancer, mammography. 
mammograms are good at finding um, these very small uh, masses that are contained, ductal carcinoma in situ, lobular carcinoma in situ, they're not cancer, but you get treated as a cancer patient. So you get surgery and radiation, take aromatase inhibitors or hormone blockade, and you get categorized as a survivor, which makes it look like not only are there more cancer patients, but there is better survival. Well, if you take a bunch of people who don't have cancer and treat them and call them survivors, you're the, all you're doing is padding your numbers to gen up the research machine. You're not really helping people. Same thing is true with uh, prostate cancer, a PSA test. My, a good friend of mine, Richard Ablin, is the guy who discovered prostate-specific antigen, PSA. And it's not a marker for cancer. The error rate is 74%. But we have a million men in the United States who've had their prostates taken out. They're wearing diapers and taking Viagra because they um, had surgery for not cancer. So, so the key is there's a difference between a real cancer patient and one who has been sucked into the cancer medical mill. And you can see it in the numbers. In other words, the, the death rate from prostate cancer for men has remained at about 3%. I mean, you, you have millions of men now who are prostate cancer patients, but you still got the death rate has remained the same. So you're not, and that's the metric. Again, what metric should we be looking at? With a prevention program, um, population screening should result in a reduction in the risk of dying of that particular type of cancer. Colonoscopy, same thing. There's not one randomized trial that shows that colonoscopy used as a screening tool, population screening tool, reduces the risk of dying of colon cancer. The Canadians took it off the list of uh, recommended screenings in 2016 for that reason. So, so anyway, um, real cancer, your, your issue is survival, and that's the metric nobody pays attention to. In other words, when, you, when you're diagnosed with cancer and you really have it, now your oncologist starts talking to you about shrinking tumors or changing blood numbers, plasma numbers. But the real thing you want to be looking at is if I, what is my expected lifespan if I do nothing? What is my expected lifespan if I do what you're telling me to do? And most, many, much of the time we're talking about a few months, maybe, with a dreadful quality of life during that period of time. And then it's time to look for alternatives or the use of conventional therapy more intelligently than it is offered, generally speaking, in this country. But, but you do recommend uh, some serious changes in people's diet when, when, they, when they have a real cancer. Well, other changes too, and you'll like what I'm going to say about this. Um, there's a great book called Radical Remission by Kelly Turner. She did, yeah. Now, and one of the things that uh, her cancer patients who are survivors told her is they all thought they got cancer for a reason. They had to look at what was out of whack in their life and their thinking. And you know, so um, cancer is a message to people. Something is not right in your life. And it probably has something to do with you, eat, with what you're eating. But it often has a lot more to do with other things, too. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have to say... I remember many years ago, I, I, for 15 years, I was a staff member of the Shakta Center for Complementary Medicine, and we had people coming from all over the world, cancer patients. And one woman had advanced lung cancer, and, and really, we could not help her, nobody could help her. And then she traveled to Florida to have her hip, uh, Hippocrates Center. Mm -hmm. And cancer, first... Uh, it stopped. It was growing very fast. Mm -hmm. she, she, she couldn't breathe. She was deteriorating like before our eyes. And then suddenly it stopped. Mm 
Mm-hmm. She came three months later, a different person. Mm-hmm. So if when you change, but when I work with cancer patients, and I do not, I'm not nutritionist. I don't. I send people to nutritionists or naturopathic doctors. But what I learned is very often when a person goes on a, a, a fast, mm-hmm. is a week, it suddenly puts gives a shock to the body, but a good shock. Mm-hmm. Right. You you also feel this way? Yeah. Well, and that's where that's where you get into um, number one, understanding the cause of cancer and and addressing it, and also the characteristics of cancer. And so, even longer term fasting is sometimes advisable, as is intermittent fasting to potentiate chemotherapy. There are all kinds of ways that you can use therapy intelligently. And um, and so, what, you know, when you're talking about the diet at Hippocrates, the raw diet, um, as a therapeutic tool, it may save your life. Um, combined with periods of water fasting. And, um, and, and by the way, the, the best cancer treatments for people who have tough to treat cancers are complex. They do a lot of different things. Um, and there's a, I don't know if you've read Jane McClellan's book, um, How to Starve Cancer. Um, she's a woman in the UK who had stage four cancer and she cured herself. And the book is, um, I would have, if I were the editor of the book, I would have written it a little, had it written a little more differently so that people could understand her protocols better. But she does consultations, so you can talk to her. But I'll tell you what did come through in the book is, and I think this is really important for cancer patients, she was determined to live, period. I mean, you you felt this during the book. You, you could feel like, I'm going to do whatever I have to do. She even stopped part of her career because she said, I've got to, if I don't focus on living, you know, and then I, you know, I, I talk to cancer patients, and it goes to what you, what your specialty is, mental health. Like, what is your mindset about this? And I talk to cancer patients who say, well, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and who's going to feed the kids? And you know, people who live through cancer, they, they understand. I've got to start to prioritize myself. Maybe that's the message I'm going to get from this cancer. I got to start seeking out a cure. I got to try things. I may have to go to Florida and eat sprouts for a week. I may need to go to True North in California and do water fasting for three weeks. I I'm going to do what I have to do to survive. And that completely may change somebody's outlook on life going through that process, you know? Yeah. If I could define cancer with one word or a couple of words, it would be it's a disease of boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Yes. Just like a cell, it breaks its boundaries. The mm-hmm. same thing. Very often I find that cancer patients have either their boundaries broken or they break somebody else's boundaries mm-hmm. and the environment in which they cannot live. Mm-hmm. So, so we think the same way. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm, unfortunately, we, we're running out of time. So I want to ask you something. Uh, God, I have a whole list of... <laughs> well, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. <laughs> yeah, <please. laughs> um, you know, when I talk to someone, particularly when I finish working with them, I say, if there is one thing I want you to take away with um, from this relationship is um, that you must know how to work with your night dreams. Because you have, not Peter Resnick, much better than Peter Resnick, you have someone who loves you, who knows about you from day one, who cares about you, and is eager to provide you with information of where you are and where you're going. And that's your night dreams. So if there is one thing only for you to learn from me is how to work with your night dreams. So please 
what is one thing you feel that people need to learn from you if it's only one thing yeah i think it's the importance of health because if you don't have it nothing else matters and if you have everything but that at some point in time it will be the only thing that you spend time on like i said before and we tend we tend to not appreciate that which is given to us we are born, most of us have had the good fortune to be born healthy and to stay healthy most of our lives, relatively speaking. And, um, and I'll tell you what keeps me on the straight and narrow and taking care of myself is dealing with people who are, they're sick and uncomfortable and scared and tired of dealing with it. And, and it, it, their quality of life is consumed by issues regarding health. So if you're watching this and you're in, in a fortunate position, like I was when I changed my ways of being not a sick, debilitated person, do everything you can to stay that way. And, um, and as you go through life, as I mentioned, I'm 64. A lot of people my age, there's so much that they can't do. Like, you know, when we started on this whole COVID thing, and this has been a, like a 20 hour a day commitment to be able to do this and still run my company and everything else. And, and I, it's only because I have taken care of and continue to take care of myself that I can do this. And I'll tell you what would make me very unhappy is if I had said last year when this all started, I would love to help, but I can't because I'm just not up for it. All right. And fortunately, I don't have to say that about many things. I mean, I don't know if I can climb, climb Mount Everest or if I even want to, but there's really nothing that I seek to do that's within my the realm of my capability and training and all that, that I can't rise to the occasion to do. And, um, and that's a beautiful gift that we should not squander. And uh, sometimes people don't realize how much they've squandered and taken their health for granted until they're in serious trouble. Don't wait for that time. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I think we just started our conversation, actually. Maybe at one point we can get together again and talk about some specific problems that you and I worked and uh, share our different approaches. Not, they're not so different. They're complementary, but we're in different fields. Mm -hmm. so, Love to. It'll be interesting. Again, thank you very much. Thank Hope you for having me. It's been a pleasure. With us. Thank you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you all for participating today. And I'm looking forward to having you here next Tuesday. I wish you all well and peace to all who want to live in peace. Thank you. Bye bye.